Morning, everybody. Welcome to Hope. So glad you're here. Turn to the person next to you and say, thanks for being a hearty soul, coming out on a cold morning. Really glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Thanks for all of you who are watching at one of our campuses uh, around town. Glad that you're uh, here as well. What, one of the things about Hope that always impresses me, especially on a day like this, the Super Bowl food drive, is your giving heart, your spirit, the way that you reach out uh, and we're overwhelmed by the amount of food that you brought in already. Uh, did you see it out there, whatever campus you're at? I'm assuming at the other campuses is good too, because here, we've never seen anything like this, uh, this early on in the food drive. We're only like halfway through Sunday morning, so give God praise uh, for that, uh, wherever you are. Thank you for your generosity. And thank you for your hearty spirits uh, coming out on cold days. This is Iowa, and I think... This is just me. I'm going to sound like an old grumpy guy for a second, but I feel like we're softening a little bit on the whole weather thing. Like if it gets cold, oh, can't go outside, or there's a snowflake, and so run for your lives, uh, that kind of thing. But you're here, and that just, just impresses me and amazes me. So for the heathens who didn't come, don't worry about them. We're glad, <laughs> we're glad that you have a priority. The way I always look at it is if you had a ticket for the Super Bowl today, would you let the weather keep you from going? Or if you had a ticket for some play at the Civic Center or something, would, would this weather keep you from going? If it would, then don't go to church, just watch online, stay home. But if it wouldn't, isn't hanging out in God's house more important than a football game or going to a play or something? Like that? Isn't it worth coming out? So well done, everybody who is present uh, today. And let everybody know who isn't that I'm really hacked off at them. But we have... I'm not at all. I'm not at all. I'm just blown away by you. So that scene that you saw from the TV show The Crown is the most expensive TV show ever produced, apparently, and uh, one of the most popular. And it has had two seasons of 10 episodes each. They have seven full-time researchers because they want accuracy, and they want it close. And apparently the queen, her, the queen herself has said how much she admires and appreciates this series because they've gone to such detail in making sure that it's as accurate as possible. You don't hear that often from the people who are depicted in these true stories in movies or TVs, but she's a big fan of herself, I guess, on The Crown, and she's a big fan of, see, so she said they really have captured the spirit of it and, and the essence of it, and you can tell they've tried hard to get it right. And one of the things they got right was that scene you just saw. In 1955, true story, Billy Graham went to England and started a revival, and it was a shot of adrenaline into a spiritually lethargic country. That was according to the Archbishop of the Church of England after Billy Graham was there. He said, we needed it. We needed that revival. We needed that movement. We needed people to wake up from their spiritual slumber. And that's exactly what happened. Not only did it capture the attention of a lot of the Brits uh, in 1955, but it captured the attention of the Queen herself. That's Queen Elizabeth II as a young monarch, the, the, the queen who didn't think she'd be queen, but her uncle abdicated the throne and her father George had to take over right before World War II and some people think it practically killed him. He died young of, of, of cancer, lung cancer, and so Queen Elizabeth ascends to the throne in her 20s and she's now been reigning on that throne for 174 years. It's phenomenal, her longevity. It's it, it, not that long, but she's incredible and she's a humble woman of faith. But that faith was awakened by God through Billy Graham in 1955 when it captured her attention 
And her, her mother sitting there, the queen mother saying, what's going on with this country? They're weeping. Why are they crying? They're crying because they're being transformed. Because they're finally finding what their souls have been longing for. The same gospel that's here and is available for you in the scriptures today, in the proclamation of that word, was there for them. And it inspires us and it makes us weep. People sometimes tell me, say, I, I get so embarrassed, I come to church and I cry. I, I just weep, I don't know what that is. And that's the gospel. That's your creator who loves you and you connecting to that love. You connecting to the reality that you were born on purpose and there's meaning to life and there's a God who loves you and cares about you and pours out his grace for you. And it doesn't matter who you are or how powerful you are, that grace is here for you. Queen Elizabeth was so moved and so inspired and her faith was awakening on such a level, she actually invited Billy Graham to her private chapel to give a sermon there for just her closest family and friends. When this episode was released, it caused quite a stir. Uh, on the internet, with social commentators, critics, they all wondered, is the queen really that faithful? Is she really somebody who seeks Christ in that kind of a level? Is she, it, it, did she really have that conversation with Billy Graham? Does she, is she really seeking God like that, with passion? Would she really say that it's Christ who guides her, who leads her? She's the queen of England. She sits on a throne. She lives in a palace. She has all the money that anybody could ever want. She has homes all over the United Kingdom and in Northern Ireland. She has, she has all of this prestige. Would somebody like that, with that kind of status, that kind of lofty position in this world, that kind of power, would somebody like that really be seeking anything more? See, that's the thing about the royal family anywhere, or, or celebrities, or you know, uh, great musicians, or famous athletes, or whatever it might be, that we look from the outside in and we say, oh, wow, if you could achieve that, you'd really have something, wouldn't you? You, you wouldn't need hardly anything else in the world. But the great thing about this series is it reveals a deeper truth, that life is a struggle no matter who you are. That we live in a fallen world and there's going to be tensions and there's going to be stresses and there are relationships that are strained and there are sibling rivalries and there are issues that pop up over and over and over again. And so the queen says to Billy Graham accurately, according to the true account, that she's longing to be a simple Christian. And Billy Graham goes on to say, quotes Colossians 1.27 saying, this is the secret, Christ lives in you. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you belong to Jesus Christ. And when you know that, when you live that, when you breathe it in and out on a daily basis, it gives you the assurance of sharing in his glory. There's a power in that that no worldly position can give us. That no money, that no uh, acquisition of possessions or, or strength could ever give to us. It's a power that comes to us from God's love. People who are the critics and the commentators on this series look at it and they, they, they parse every, every line and, and they, they look at it. I mean, people are obsessed with the royal family, right? And, and so they look at it and they say, did this really happen? And then after they realize it really did happen, they wonder why. And I think that that's fascinating. I think it's wonderful that this TV show included this because it's such a big part of the queen's life. If you're going to tell the story of the queen, the true story, you have to talk about her Christian faith. Because it's central to her. 
I'm not saying she's a perfect saint. I'm not saying that, that, that we should be exactly like her or anything like that. I am saying, though, that there's something for us here. That no matter who we are, there is this, well, there is this higher thing that all of us need and that all of us should strive to attain. And it is that Christ lives in us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that is here for us again today. Christ lives in you. He's in you. The power of God is there for you, in you, helping you get through life in this fallen, messed up world. I think the second thing that surprises people is that people who live these charmed lives have messes they have to clean up. They have struggles. They have challenges. They they have to wrestle along the way. From the outside looking in at the Super Bowl today, at more famous people, we say, oh wow, if I could just be a coach or a player on the New England Patriots or the Philadelphia Eagles, man, that'd be the pinnacle, that, that'd be the ultimate. But peel the layer back, just one layer on their stories and you discover something more. These are real people, in a sense, very much ordinary people who are particularly gifted at playing football as athletes. But here are the Philadelphia Eagles who have experienced a full-blown revival this year, much like we've experienced at Hope. We saw it at our Christmas Eve services, the, the overwhelming response and the way that God continues to use that to create and stir faith up in people who never thought they'd have it, much to their surprise. The baptisms that followed a few weeks after at all of our campuses where people lined up by the hundreds to be baptized, it, the, the move of God in our student ministries and our young adult ministries the young adult ministry we have here at Hope called Revive and at our Des Moines campus and the, the college ministry up in Ames called Kairos that's booming and the high school and junior high ministries that we have here that are bigger than they've ever been. They just keep growing. Kids and young adults keep inviting their friends to come and find what they've discovered, the gospel. The same thing the queen was longing for. The same thing these Super Bowl athletes are longing for. Here's a picture of a young man on the Philadelphia Eagles a few weeks ago who was baptized. One of multiple baptisms that they experienced on the team this year because mature Christians on their team were leading them to faith in Jesus Christ. Nick Foles, who's their quarterback, who's filling in for Carson Wentz, who was their quarterback, who was potentially going to be the MVP of the whole league, but he tore his ACL. He goes down. He's a deeply devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Carson Wentz is the quarterback who got injured. And so then they bring in the heathen, right? No, I'm just kidding. They bring in Nick Foles, who's deeply devoted as a follower of Jesus Christ as well. In fact, you remember those old black WWJD bracelets that people used to wear 10 or 15 years ago? I mean, who wears those anymore? He does. He's got it on right there. Because that's the way he lives out his faith. Nick Foles, this guy who was considered the greatest up-and-coming quarterback in the whole NFL just a few years ago. He had seven touchdown passes in one game, an NFL record. Every team wanted him on their team. And then it's almost like he fell off the map. It's like he forgot how to play quarterback. His stats went down, he got cut from a team, and he struggled, and he said, I didn't even know if I wanted to play anymore. I really struggled with it. Over on the New England side, they say, this is our secret weapon, just in case you think the Eagles are Christians and these are like the bad people. Maybe you think that, I don't know. I mean, it's two teams from the Northeast. Who really cares? But New England, <laughs> that's how I feel anyway. 
but I'll watch. It's sports. It's fun. New England says, this guy right here is our secret weapon. He's one of their assistant coaches. His name is Coach Easterby. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Coach Easterby is a pastor who the Patriots hired, and to kind of massage it in a PR way, they call him their character coach. Isn't that rich? Their character coach who prays with his team before and after the games and who every man on the team read all these articles about it this last week who says, we love that guy because he genuinely loves us. Unlike some other team chaplains who come on the team just because they like to be around famous athletes and you can smell it. This guy doesn't seem all that impressed with us at all, but he loves us. He genuinely cares about who we are. He genuinely wants to know how we're doing. He's got 45 guys on the team to take care of, plus the coaches and the guys on the practice squad, and he does. He's there for them. And they say, he's our secret weapon. He's the reason we are the Patriots, and we're really hard to beat every year. They say, yeah, Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, greatest of all time, true, 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 right? But the players say it's this guy. He's the one who keeps us grounded. He's the one who keeps us on a steady keel, whether they're the ups and downs of a regular season or the playoffs. And this is Matthew Slater, who's kind of the leader of the pack, the Pro Bowl wide receiver, who's going to probably have a great game today because Tom Brady puts every pass right in every receiver's hands. I don't know how he does that, but he will. And so Matthew Slater will probably shine like he always does. And if he does, and they interview either one of these guys after the game, you watch. They will give God the glory. Matthew Slater puts it this way. He says, I think for me, all in all, what I have to understand is the NFL life, and some people might be offended by this, but it's temporary. And that kind of helps me realize it might be fun to do X, Y, Z, but it's only going to bring temporary satisfaction in my life. And in light of eternity, it's really not that important, says the guy who's playing on the Super Bowl stage today, keeping his balance along the way. And he's just one of many on that team. I'm not saying everybody on the Patriots and the Eagles is a Christian, but a lot of them are. And they're playing for an audience of one. Nick Foles, the backup quarterback who's experiencing a revival in his career. And if you're a Vikings fan, you're kind of upset about that, but it's God-ordained. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. I really start your quarterback's also a deeply devoted Christian, but he lost, so deal with it. I really struggle. <laughs> Nick Foles said after he got cut, I really struggled. I couldn't pick up a football for eight months. I had no love for the game. It was really tough, but I kept reading the Bible. I kept reading scripture. I kept praying. I kept asking God, do you? In the midst of your struggles, do you hold on to the faith? Do you keep it? I kept with God. I remembered that Christ is living in me. He was shaping me. He was bringing me down to my knees. He was at that moment through prayer, God said, Nick, I'm going to be with you every step of the way and you're going to play to glorify me. After his career as an NFL quarterback, Nick Foles and Matthew Slater, the guy on the previous screen, have both said they want to become, <laughs> this just cracks me up, pastors. Which is ironic because after I retire as a pastor, I'm going to become an NFL quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> See, how do I look? I did play quarterback in high school, but I didn't. It wasn't that good. So we, we have these celebrities, these queens, these famous people, and if they get it right, and even if they don't, they all long for the same thing. If they get it right, they find it. They open their hearts to it. They keep their balance. 
They realize what it is. It's a game. It's the pinnacle of the game. It's important in that sense, but it's a game. It's a sport. There's more to life than these things. It's a throne. It's a crown I wear. It's a responsibility I have. But there's more to life than this. What a shocker. What a surprise for a world that practically worships these people. Puts them on a pedestal they never wanted to be on, most of them. Because they know who they are. They know that it's a struggle in this world. And that takes us right into the heart of our Bible story for today. As we go through the book of Genesis to start this new year on a mission from God, that's our theme as a church, we're reading these stories about real people. I mean, ordinary people. We, we hear about people like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and, and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel, and we think, oh, wow. They have from, if we haven't read their stories or we haven't looked at them lately, we might give in to the temptation of thinking they live perfect saintly lives, right? I mean, this is Jacob. The whole nation of Israel is named after him. He must have been just some kind of, attained some sort of moral plateau that none of us could ever achieve. No, he didn't. He was a train wreck of a human being. Kept the faith, held on, wrestled with God, but he was a train wreck. He, he was a conniving, manipulating, birthright, blessing, stealing from his own twin brother uh, 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 in cahoots with his mother because they had all sorts of dysfunction in their family to lie to his father. Uh, made raw, dirty deals with Laban, his father-in-law, to practically steal his, his, his wealth and his income. This is Jacob, a mess of a man on all sorts of levels. But you see, God doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does want to transform us. So let's not worship Jacob or Isaac or Abraham or Noah or any of the heroes of the Old Testament or the queen or Super Bowl athletes or great musicians or bloggers or authors or speakers or whatever it might be. Let's Turn our focus higher so that it can grow deeper in us. As the queen says, as simple Christians, simple Christians are the ones who go deepest. They're the ones who find the most mature faith. Jacob wrestled with God, the Bible says. We, we all know at least probably on some level, even if you aren't familiar with the Bible, that Jacob and Esau kind of had this sibling rivalry fight thing going on. But the lesser known story is that Jacob actually wrestled with God. And after he did, God said, your name is no longer Jacob. From now on, it's Israel. Which, again, if we don't know what the Bible actually says in the original Hebrew of Genesis, we might think Israel means the chosen people of God, right? The greatest nation on earth, right? God's people. That's got to be what Israel means. <laughs> Israel means God wrestlers. People who struggle. People who wrestle with God. People of faith, we are, whether you are uh, Jewish or not, we are all Israelites, the Bible says in this sense, grafted onto this tree through Jesus Christ. We are all people who are wrestlers with God. If we're going to be honest, one of the biggest problems with Christianity in our culture today is we pretend. We, we aren't honest with ourselves or with other people. We put on a face, a facade, uh, kind of a bit of a show. 
pretending to be more moral than we really are, more religious than we really are, more spiritual than we really are, when in reality, we're a whole lot more like Jacob, a whole lot more like uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah, a whole lot more like Rebecca, who manipulated her husband in order to get the birthright stolen. But God is a God of grace and patience, and he wants us to wrestle with that. We live in a fallen, messed up, difficult world where relationships sometimes get strained. So we wrestle with God. But then God says, you've wrestled with me. You've wrestled with God, and you've come through. You've kept the faith. Folks, that's the key. Not to pretend you're something that you aren't, but the great thing about Christianity is God's grace is there at the center of it for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that the queen was talking to Billy Graham about. True story. Looking for something that she couldn't get from a crown, from a throne, from a palace, from power, from being royal. Looking for something more. Looking for a crown in the kingdom of heaven that lasts for eternity. You've wrestled with God and you've come through, Elizabeth. You've wrestled with God and you've come through, backup quarterback who's getting another chance. You've wrestled with God and come through, Pro Bowl wide receiver who keeps the faith and stays humble in the midst of it all, even though there are people who are practically worshiping you because you play football so well. You've kept the faith. Oh, that God could say that to us when it's all said and done. If you want to set a primary goal in your life that could be it I kept the faith it's not that my life was perfect or easy but I kept the faith I remembered the gospel that Christ lives in me that I belong to Jesus Christ and I never let go of that I held on to that so that's the beauty and the power of Christianity is we get to be honest we get to tell the truth about our need for God's amazing grace. When Jacob and Esau were younger, their story um, gets even worse. The details of Jacob stealing the blessing, the birthright, from his twin brother Esau. Esau, I love this depiction of them. It's a bit exaggerated, but you know. Uh, Esau was called Esau because when he was born, he had red hair. And the parents were like, oh, let's call him red. So they call him Esau in Hebrew, which means red. Jacob means striver, somebody who's grasping for life, for, and he's grasping at Esau, his twin brother's uh, uh, heel as they're being born. Esau's born first, which is a big deal in Middle Eastern culture. It's a big deal in the British monarchy, too. The reason Elizabeth is queen and his, her sister Margaret was not is because she was born first. Same thing back then. Esau gets the blessing. Esau has the birthright. Esau's going to, and that's not just sort of a figurative metaphorical thing back then. It means he's going to be rich. It means he's going to have more stuff. He's going to have more status, more position. He's going to have the throne. He's going to be the one who wears the crown of the family, so to speak. That's the culture. Esau comes home from a hunt. He's a daddy's boy. He's a hunter. Jacob's the mama's boy. He's, he's the one who stays back with Rebecca all the time. Esau comes back from a hunt famished. He says, I'm starved, little brother, twin brother. Give me some of that red stew. It's just kind of this little play on humorous words in the Hebrew that a guy named Red is looking for red stew. He can't get enough red in his life, apparently. So Jacob, instead of being the good brother and say, yeah, here you go, man, you must be famished. You've got your gifts, I've got my gifts. Let's not be envious of each other. Let's just serve each other. 
That would be the righteous way to live. But Jacob sees this as an opportunity. (laughs) I'll give you this stew, Esau, my brother, if you give me your birthright. Now, don't give Esau a pass because the Bible says at the end of this chapter that Esau was careless with his birthright. He shouldn't have been. That's sinful. He should have honored it more. Should have honored his family, his father more in this way. But he was careless. He said, I'd rather eat a meal than receive a blessing from my father. So he did. As a rule of thumb, here's how I can make this as practical as possible for us. Don't ever give up your birthright or a blessing from God for a can of Dintimore beef stew. It's not a good idea. It's just not worth it. But speaking of Dintimore beef stew, you could go out to the grocery store after the service, whatever campus you're at, buy 92 cans of Dintimore beef stew and bring it back for the Super Bowl food drive. Because there are people in our community who are undernourished and underfed, and that percentage is growing all the time. And this time of year, food pantries are really struggling. 10 or 11 years ago, we noticed that and we can make a difference. We can make a huge difference, and so we will. That's the end of the commercial. Turn to the person next to you and say, go get some food, baby. Let's be the church. Let's live it out. Move on. Well, uh, before we move on, here's a kind of an important verse. Jesus says, when you do that for the least of these in your midst, your neighbors, the people who need it the most, you're doing it to me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. Life's a struggle for a lot of people in our community. Maybe you're part of that. Not everybody who comes to hope is doing well. A lot of people who come to hope are really struggling. And we see that every week at our outreach night here on Thursday nights, where we offer a free meal and we give out groceries and clothes. We see people who are really hurting. These are our neighbors. These aren't random, faceless people. These are people we're getting to know and are developing relationships with and who come back to church on weekends. This is you. We're collecting this food for you. And we're collecting this food for the 90 food pantries in central Iowa that are in desperate need of it right now. So if you don't feel like doing that, that's fine, but I'm going to give you some good guilt. There's bad guilt that shames you, and then there's good guilt that inspires you to do something righteous. I'm going for the good guilt here. If you go home and watch the Super Bowl, I hope you get sick to your stomach on the chips and dip if you don't go and bring some Dinty Mar soup back. I, real, I, I don't, but I do, but I don't. I'm, I, see, it's a struggle for me. I'm wrestling with God on this. I really want you to be the church, but I don't want to shame you into it. Just do what God inspires you to do. We trust that around here. But life is a struggle. How many of you have siblings? Raise your hand. Whatever campus you're at, most of you. How many of you have ever had a sibling rivalry or a little tension in your relationship with a sibling? How many of you are wondering if you should raise your hand because your sibling is sitting next to you right now? Elizabeth and Margaret, the royal family, had that sibling rivalry, and they learned it. You know, things get passed on from generations, which is why the way you, older adults, treat your siblings will be learned by your kids. The way you talk about them behind their backs is what your kids will learn about how they're going to get along with their siblings when they grow up, too. These things pass on, the Bible says. And underneath it all, there is this tension, there is this struggle. James 4 lays it out for us. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the darkness, the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight. And the church goes quiet. Because this just nails us, if we're going to be honest. 
On some level, we all get at least tempted to go here. And a lot of us give into this one on a regular basis. I could um, talk about this just personally, too. My brothers and I love each other to death, loyal to each other. If anybody goes after me, they're, they're going to they're back me and stand me up, and I do the same for them, to, to, to the wall for each other. But when it's just the three of us, or just two of us, it's not an hour before some fight comes up. Some, I mean, we just about want to cream each other, like when we were little kids, let's wrestle, come on, let's go. But lately it's the, what's the best place to live? Duh, it's Des Moines. I mean, we, we live here, and all the statistics back us up, right? Well, every month, a new article is published that says Des Moines is the greatest place for this or the greatest place for that or whatever. I'm trying to enlighten my brothers on this. They're not at all impressed with us on any level whatsoever. One of them lives in Orange County, California on the beach, and he surfs ocean, if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> Another one lives in Naperville, Illinois, this wonderful, glorious suburb of Chicago, if you are into that. And we all kind of brag about where we live as it's the best place. I really believe it's Des Moines. I really, truly do. I think they're wrong. They think I'm wrong. Don't even get me started about our political fights and debates that we have. Because we're three different places completely on that. Underneath it all is this desire that isn't clean. It's not just I want to be right and they be wrong. Well, it is that, isn't it? But that gets kind of ugly. We scheme, we fight, because there's something in us that's at war, it's a struggle. If we're gonna be honest. Now if you wanna play church, if you wanna just pretend and, and go through the motions of Christianity, you're probably in the wrong sermon. You're probably in the wrong church. You're probably in the wrong Bible. Because if you read the Bible for what it says, you're gonna read about Messes of human beings who struggle and who wrestle with God. But God doesn't leave us alone. That's not a cop-out. That's not a, well, we're all just big messes, so let's go out and continue to be terrible messes. God says, here, let me show you a better way. He says, I want you to forgive. I want you to learn to let go. Next screen, please. I want you to see this the way I see it. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. When Elizabeth and her sister Margaret were young, their father George, who historically was a good king and historically was a great dad, by all accounts he poured into his daughters and his wife. He loved them deeply. He died a young man of cancer in his 50s. He never wanted to be king. He never thought he'd be king. He was the second son. His brother Edward abdicated the throne because he was a weenie. <laughs> I mean, that's really why. And because he ended up in cahoots with the Nazis and Hitler and, and, and all sorts of talk about a train wreck of a human being. And so the royal family was left with a conundrum. If we're going to really be Christian, do we forgive? And do we forgive each other? And do siblings like Elizabeth and Margaret forgive each other? It doesn't matter if you're royal or famous or in the Super Bowl or not. We all have the same challenges. We all have the same struggles. We all have to wrestle with God on these things. But King George, when he got into a little bit of a tiff with his brother right at the very end when Edward was leaving, and George realized that he would be king, the first thing he did 
was he called his daughters together for a family meeting. Powerful moment. Good king, historically. Great dad. Not a perfect person, but a great dad. Trying to teach his daughters, nothing comes between you. Your relationship is too important. You don't let worldly matters become more important than your relationship. You learn to forgive each other. You make allowance for each other's faults. You forgive anyone, especially those closest to you, who offends you. You remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I'm not saying this is easy. The Bible is also not saying that forgiveness means that you just trust the people who've completely run you over or, or, or that you put them back in the position they were in before so they can abuse you or hurt you again. It doesn't mean that at all. The Bible says have boundaries. And Elizabeth's going to have to learn that with her sister Margaret and particularly with her uncle Edward. But here's the thing about Elizabeth. Because she was a Christian and because her faith is central to her, before her uncle Edward, who became the Duke of Windsor, known as the Duke of Windsor, died in France, she traveled to France to make peace with him, to reconcile with him. She and her sister Margaret didn't keep their vow to their father, their promise that they would never let anything come between them. They did. And in some ways, it threatened the whole royal family. It, it threatened the monarchy in Great Britain when it got really bad. But they let their desires for other things become more important than their relationships. They lost their way. And so they struggled, and they had to wrestle with God on this. Elizabeth particularly had to wrestle with God on this. In the same way that Jacob and Esau had to wrestle. Imagine being Esau. Your brother just stole your life. Esau's first reaction is pretty human in terms of humans having a sinful nature. And it's angry. He says, I'm going to kill my brother. And he meant it. I'm going to take his life. He, he took my life away. I'm going to kill him. As soon as our father dies, I'm going to kill him. And so Jacob fled for his life. He disappeared for 20 years, which is how he ended up marrying Rachel and making those dirty deals with Laban. 20 years later, Jacob is coming back, and he gets a message from a messenger saying, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sir, your brother is coming to meet you. <laughs> the brother who vowed to murder me. The brother who said I'm going to kill him. The brother I had to leave town because I stole his life, his birthright, his blessing. Uh, <clears throat> sir, there's more. Your brother is not only coming to meet you, he's coming with 400 of his soldiers. <laughs> huh. You think there's drama in Netflix binge-worthy series? Have you read Genesis? So his brother, being the Jacob that he is, sends his servants up ahead and says, go meet my brother and offer them, you know, offer him some money, some stuff, some things. And then he sends a second wave of people. And this is Leah, who he doesn't really care for, and her family. You go and do the same thing. Offer a peace offering. Maybe we can get him to be okay with this. And then he comes forward to Esau with his wife Rachel and their kids, Joseph, who you'll hear about next week. Think Donnie Osmond in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And he's kneeling down before his brother Esau, basically saying, please don't kill me! What would you do if you're Esau? This is the man who stole your life, who stole what was righteously coming to you, your father's birthright and blessing, and all of the worldly things that came along with that, and status and position and power. What would you do? 
Here's what Esau did. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. You don't have to wait for the prodigal son story in Luke to get this. You can read it in the first book of the Bible. Esau had grace for his brother. Where did that grace come from? It came from the blessing that Isaac, his father, gave to Esau right before Isaac died. He says, like, don't you have any blessing for me? After Jacob stole mine, the good one? And Isaac said, well, I do. It's not good. You're going to struggle. You're going to have a tough life. But at the very end of that blessing, he threw this P.S. on. He said, but Esau, when you decide to break free, you will shake Jacob's yoke from your neck. When you decide to forgive, when you decide to let it go, it doesn't mean you have to trust him because Jacob will go ahead and lie to his brother again right after this. It doesn't mean you, you, you put him back into the status he had before in your life, but you reconcile. You let it go. As far as you are able, the Bible says you live at peace with people around you. If you insist on not breaking free, if you insist on holding the grudge, you will never be able to shake that weight from your neck. It will be more of a burden to you than anyone else. Which is why God, our creator, says you have to learn to let it go. Until you learn to forgive, until you learn to break free, you'll carry the weight, you'll carry the burden. And so Esau learned it and he found it. Elizabeth, the queen, in real life, true story, struggled with this. Just like a lot of us do. She's wrestling with God like Jacob wrestled with God, like Esau actually wrestled with God before he came to this point of grace in his life. Elizabeth finally learned to let it go after she had another meeting with the hairbrush salesman from Charlotte, the preacher, Billy Graham. She had invited him back to the palace. And she was really wrestling with God as a humble Christian, a simple Christian who wanted to go deep, who wanted to keep the faith, who didn't want to carry this yoke, this unforgiveness toward her sister, Margaret, toward her uncle, Edward, who wanted to learn to be free. And so Billy Graham told her what the Bible says, what we've taught around here for 20 plus years. If you have somebody in your life you have a hard time forgiving, start at the cross and remember what Jesus said. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If somehow that isn't enough, if it's really tough, look at your own sin. And then look at God's grace for your sin. And just give to others what God gives to you. If that still isn't enough, pray for the people who persecute you. I'm not at all suggesting the queen is a perfect saint, but she's kept the faith. Apparently, according to all the witnesses around the palace, they see the queen in that posture every day, kneeling before God, praying. The queen of England humbling herself before a holy God. I find it fascinating when some of the most powerful people in the world discover the same truth that sets them free that our power is nothing relative to God's. Even the greatest thing this world can do is really not all that big of a thing relative to God. This is part of the gospel too. This God with all this power is in you. That's what it means to be a Christian, what it means to keep the faith. Christ is in you. Keep the faith. Follow God's direction and his counsel. I'll turn it over to the campus pastors, each of the campuses.
for the sacrament of Holy Communion. Here in West Des Moines, I invite all the communion servers to come to their stations right now, and we'll get ready to receive this mark, this sign of the gospel, the good news of God's love that's poured out for us, that calls us to tell the truth, to acknowledge that life is a struggle, that we wrestle with God, but God calls us to break free. God calls us to lighten the load, to remove the yoke, the burden that we carry around our necks when we live in unforgiveness, to make peace as far as we're able to live at peace with the world around us. It was in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, broke it, gave thanks, and gave it for all to eat, saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do it to remember me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Do this to remember me. Together, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Come and eat, come and drink. The table is set. Take the wafer of bread, dip it in the red wine or the white grape juice. Receive it together. Allergy-free stations up here available for you wherever you're sitting. Just get in line up here if that's what you need. Um, during this time of communion, you can worship, you can sing, you can come up and pray, you can light a candle. There'll be people up here to pray for you as well. And then go out and buy some food uh, and bring it back. And let's fill up these 90 food pantries. Let's be the church. What we're doing here has everything to do with forgiveness of others. Because God forgives us, he inspires us to go out and do the same. Because God loves us, he calls us to love others. Because God has grace for us, he calls us to have grace for others. So come and receive God's grace for you. And then go and live it out and be the church.